0: Career Disruptors is the podcast for senior managers who are not afraid to challenge the status quo, who challenge assumptions and who push the boundaries and love shattering conventional wisdom. I'm coach Caroline De Kimber, empowering professionals to build a personal brand that gives them the confidence they need to go after the career they want and deserve. Thanks for tuning in today. And today on the show, we have Dan McCarty. Dan's career has been extraordinary so far, and you'll hear all about it during today's show. But in summary, Dan is a Sydney-based entrepreneur with extensive sales, business growth, and management experience spanning across Australia and the US. Today, Dan is going to give us some invaluable insights on driving a workplace performance culture across generations. So welcome to the show, Dan.
1: Thank you. Good morning. How are you?
0: Very, very well. So before we dive in, I would love to find out what got you so interested in this topic. What's your story around it?
1: So this topic in particular, there's a number of things that have sort of drawn me to it and really sort of piqued my interest. The first is this whole millennial culture. We hear a lot about it in the news at the moment. Um, There seems to be a bit of a... um, a bit of interest in the millennial culture in general because they are sort of approaching the workforce very differently to what we've seen in the past. Um, and they're sort of shaking up the the traditional view of things, the way that things have been done for the last sort of 30 or 40 years. Um, and in some cases, they're also doing quite well. So, um, I mean, I've I've obviously come into that culture at quite a young age. So it's been sort of all around me as I've progressed through my career. Um, and I find it fascinating the the different approach that um, these younger, younger working class people are actually taking to their careers and the things that they're actually able to achieve.
0: Hmm. So, what, what's a different approach that that you have seen? Because I see it from my side and from being in HR, like in recruitment, uh, most of my career. But what what do you see? What are the differences that that you notice?
1: So, there's there's a few. I mean, if you can look at the even just right down to the the social aspect, so we won't won't get into the um, the industry specific differences at the moment. So from a social perspective, so I currently work in the finance industry, which is quite a traditional industry. You sort of think very old school, very corporate. You know, banking. It's it's almost kind of it's it's very unsexy these days. It's it's almost a boring industry to be a part of. Um, however, you've got this new tech dynamic that sort of introduced itself to the space. And with that comes t-shirts, bean bags, ping pong tables, the whole shebang. Um, and that's, that's been primarily driven by the, the millennial entrance into the workforce. So they've brought with them this new sort of social culture that you don't have to fit the traditional mold to be able to do your job mm-hmm. um, to the same ability as everyone else. Um, I mean, it, it's been slowly introduced through casual Fridays yeah. Um, as we've seen over the last few years. Casual Fridays has now sort of extended to the full working week. So, um, you know, a lot of the meetings that I'm a part of these days, if the if the person I'm meeting with is sort of under 30, more often than not, they're actually not in a, in a suit or tie anymore. You know, they're, they're in whatever they're comfortable in, provided it's, you know, up to a respectable standard. Um, and it's the clothes that they feel comfortable in or comfortable enough to do their job to the best of their ability. It's not set by a certain... Um, traditional expectation anymore. So,
2: yep.
1: I mean, that's that's from a visual perspective. From a like from a working standpoint, the same approach um, has been applied to a lot of the the processes and the fundamental thinking and problem solving in particular. I mean, millennials seem to bring this this lateral thinking to problem solving that we just haven't seen for the last few years in the workforce.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think it's been very very valuable in some of the cultural changes they've been able to bring to different industries.
0: Mm -hmm. it's so interesting like what do you think the resistance is to that because I can often see conflict between like people that have a traditional approach to what we have always done in an organization so that's what we know works to people that like to challenge that so there is a conflict so what what is what's your experience with that
1: so people are very resistant to change once they're sort of set in their ways. Um, and that, that goes all the way down to the micro. I mean, if example, if you're, if you're used to using uh, a non-electric toothbrush, the reality is the next time you go to the supermarket, you're probably not going to buy an electric toothbrush this time either. Um, and that extends all the way up into our work habits as well. So you'll find that people that have been doing the same job, the same way for 10, 20, 30, sometimes 50 years, um, often feel a little, um, off put by having to then change the way that they do things Mm. There's there's a social and behavioral aspect that sort of ties into that. But I think the reality is like, um, people feel a little uncomfortable with being retaught. Um, Mm. they feel a little, they they almost get taken back to their schooling days i think everyone sort of works very hard to get through their primary and tertiary education yeah. then they enter the workforce where they start to feel like they've carved out their own little niche and i think the last thing that they want to do is all of a sudden not be in a position of control yeah um so it, it's a very difficult concept to um <laughs> to sort of approach without conflict yeah um and yeah i think some of the the people that have been or had these, these particular ways of doing things ingrained are often very resistant to change. So, um, it's difficult, but we see it, we see it every day, particularly in, in my current workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just one of those things that you have to have to manage and be very accepting of. So,
0: yeah. So who do you think drives that change? Because you you would have like uh, a previous generation being in a leadership position at the moment. So um, change needs to happen to uh, future-proof often organizations. So who drives that change and decides really to, to implement certain new ways of working?
1: So we try not to shift... Um you know, the the power to sort of who's driving that change to one end of the scale or the other. Mm-hmm. And what we actually use as the the key metric for that is just the bottom line of the business. And I think that keeps it very impartial. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, there'll be um, the older generation who will sometimes have a much better, um, much better way of solving a particular problem. And that will be, you know, that will be great for them. The reverse is sometimes you've got very new, uh, employees or, or very young employees who have a completely different approach as well. And that that ends up to be more beneficial to the company as well. I think we we try not to draw um, one conclusion when it comes to, you know, which age demographic or, um, or generation is actually the most successful in bringing about change. We yeah. try and link it to the long-term views of the business um, yeah. and make the decision independently each time. So you see a bit of both. I mean, experience counts for a lot. Um, there's no, there's no denying that at all. Um, at the same time, like, um, you know, this, this younger generation that's now starting to come through into the workforce, um, have a completely fresh approach to, to everything that they have to do in their daily process. So we also see a lot of value in that.
0: Yeah. It's, it's really, uh, a good way of looking at it and making that shift and really like only considering the bottom line and take that as your baseline. And because otherwise it's going to be a fight and constant, constant conflict and you're never going to achieve the objective that's, that, that you set out to achieve. So that is a really, really good point that you're making. So tell me more about how that is being done in your organization, how that performance culture is being uh, really applied.
1: Sure. So, if I if I can, I'll actually draw an analogy back to back to sport just briefly, because it's it's kind of the way that I look at an organization. So, when I was playing sport, my my daily task was to make a boat go as quickly as possible, and the the key metrics in that were you want to add as many things as you can that are going to increase the speed, and you want to decrease as many of the factors that are going to limit your speed. And it's the same in a working organization. So. You want to add as many things as possible to the workplace culture that are going to see it thrive and drive and sort of head in a in a positive direction. And you want you want to cut back as many of those negative factors as well. So those things are, you know, office politics, for example. You can start to develop almost like a um, a pecking order or a pecking mm-hmm. order sort of subculture, which can be quite dangerous after a little while.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, you want to cut back on um, any sort of dangerous relationships within the office, um, you definitely want to keep a lid on, um, I guess, the carrot and stick culture. So what I mean by that is, you know, over um, over incentivizing on one end and being overly punitive on the other. Um, Those two things can either sort of create favoritism or, you know, create a bit of a, a bullying culture in the workplace as well. So removing all of those things for a start is the most important bringing everyone to a level playing field, making everyone feel important and that their, their opinion is valued. Once, you know, once those fundamentals are in place, people feel comfortable and they start to share you know, ideas and um, different sort of versions of things that they might not have been otherwise comfortable to bring to the table. Um, and that really starts to trend you in a positive direction. So you don't all have to be friends, but a basic level of respect is, is definitely required as, as the first step.
0: Yeah. So would you say, um, what would you say the approach would be then if you have an established organization that um, that's actually already dysfunctional? So how do you then turn them around to becoming more of a, a performance culture?
1: So, one of
0: the strategies you have on, on that,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, one of the things that um, I've actually done in the past, there have been a couple of um, small businesses or, or cultures that I've come into that have sort of had a um, a little bit of an offset view. Um, and one of the most important things to do is basically to find the things that you respect in other people, and to be able to get everyone to do that as well. So, I actually ran an exercise where um, we all went out to lunch. And independently, we got everyone to write down the one thing that they respect the most about everyone else just in a in a quick list, and then pass that around so that other people could actually see that people did you know, even if they disliked them, people did actually have something that they respected about them, and that's really the key step in turning things around from a negative view to a positive i mean you've got to you've got to look for the good in everyone
2: yeah.
1: um, basically like everyone's there to you know, to to work toward the same goal. And everyone's obviously been hired or, or is fortunate enough to be there because they've got some sort of skill or capacity to do their job to the best of their ability. So finding that and bringing it to the table and sort of making it um, very publicly available is important so that everyone can see that they're valued and everyone knows that everyone is valued. Um, that's the most important step. So that's that would be the first thing that I would do to sort of turn around a a negative or a a nasty culture within the workplace. Yeah. Um, Second to that is, I guess, trying to level out some of the the hierarchy. I mean, we, the bigger the culture, the the longer the corporate ladder, as they say. Um, But it doesn't really have to be, you know, too tall. One of the things that I really dislike in the workplace is that middle management culture. Yeah. Um, I get that there are people that are, you know, paid a lot more to do much more important jobs or make much more important decisions. But they can't do that without everyone else, you know, contributing to the success of the business. So I think removing that middle management culture is very important. One of the things that really struck a chord with me was, um, I think it was over at Tesla, Elon Musk actually made his personal details available to everyone in the company and said, if you've got a good idea, or you just want to chat, you can contact me personally at any time. There was no sort of chain of command. There was no, you know, hurdles that you had to actually jump to get through to him directly. And I thought that was very inspirational I, as, a, as a leadership player. I thought that was that was great.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Like I think you you you're right. But when you say like, um, so it's flattened out that uh, that hierarchy. Uh, and what would you then do with that middle management? <laughs> because you can't cut them out or like, uh, just like, oh, you can't just make them disappear. So would it be like living? How do you, how would you go about that?
1: So what I would do is I would, I would then sort of, I would specialize. Each one of them has a specific role or or job or function within the business that they have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it shouldn't necessarily be their primary function to, um, to manage the people uh, directly below them. I mean, management is, it's a job, don't get me wrong, but there are other things associated with that. I think management is really um, enabling culture. It shouldn't be disciplining culture, um, which is a big sort of cultural shift within a business. If you can get that right, then everything sort of seems to fall into place. So I think being able to get each of those people in those middle management uh, positions to perform a a very specialised role, um, as in let's say you've got um, like an office manager who sort of sits between your, your frontline employees and your board of directors.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, your office manager's job is not to discipline all of the employees on the floor that are on the front line and sort of make sure they're you know, at their desk by 9 o'clock, they're leaving at 1 o'clock for lunch, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah.
1: It's, to, it's to ensure their performance, um, mm-hmm. not to reprimand them if they're not performing. Um, and to do that i think it's the it's the people above the middle management's job so the board of directors to ensure that you know their their responsibilities are more specific so you could then rather than sort of giving them the job of broadly managing the frontline employees you could say look you know we want you to make sure that for the next 6 months nobody leaves yeah. or we want you to make sure that you know each each and every person contributes to you know at least 3 sort of three meetings or this, that, the other. There should be more sort of cultural um, KPIs for middle uh, for middle management rather than sort of performance reviews.
0: I so like that. I so agree with that. And with that, uh, you have one of the aspects that is one of the biggest problems I see across businesses and that is like there is a problem with accountability. And by having the approach that you just outlined, you're going to increase that accountability because people can't hide anymore behind stuff. So you're going to have a a different, uh, you're going to put, like you said, uh, like you mentioned, that performance um, central and giving that accountability. Everybody's accountable for what they, to do what they say they're going to do and they can't hide behind stuff anymore, I think.
1: Would Would you agree? Absolutely, absolutely
0: so um why do you think it's so important that even today's organizations uh in different industries it doesn't matter like really um think about how to embrace um that performance culture and definitely in the sense of like how to incorporate all different generations to actually make that a performance culture why do you think it's so important
1: so we we live in a very competitive society you look at um any, any business, no matter which industry, there's always a bigger fish. This topic of discussion actually came up yesterday when we went to lunch. So we're based over in Bondi Junction at the moment, which is a great little spot for all different sorts of food. But one thing we do see is, you know, chains of restaurants disappearing and then reappearing every couple of months. So there's been a new chain that's opened up um, called Betty's Burgers. And mm-hmm. when it comes to burgers, there's always another chain popping up every six months. And there's always one that's sort of, closing up shop um, like a competitive culture is, is just the way we live. We always want things for a better price. We want them delivered faster. We want better service. Um, and if your business is not able to deliver those three things, then you'll find yourself out on the market very quickly. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we forget is that it's not, um, it's not our customers that um, are actually making us do that. It's the employees, the people that we hire and trust to actually deliver those goals. Yes. Um, that are the success of your business. So um, I think delivering a performance culture is extremely important because if you don't have your employees working toward the same goal that you are with the business, your business won't be around for very long.
0: Yeah, it's not future-proof at all. Yeah. Like you will lose out to uh, talent in the market because they will go to your competitors or they will be like very receptive to be poached. And you see that all the time, like companies that have the best intentions, but basically if they don't focus on their employees and on what they, the value that they can bring and really value that, then basically people say have no loyalty so I think that would be one of the consequences that that people, uh, if they embrace that, one of the things that they will have is an increased loyalty because it's not about the money anymore. It's about being part of something bigger and That's making exactly a difference.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, you look at the companies that have the like the greatest sort of company culture. They've actually entered already saturated markets over the last few years. So you take Google, who's sort of taken over where, Um, Bing and Microsoft and all those other big players were in the early 2000s. They're now the biggest in that space. You've got Uber who've taken over the taxi industry. Um, You've got Tesla who've come into the automotive industry. All three of those companies have a great um, cultural ideal and it's very evident from the outside as well. Mm. And you can tell that the employees, you know, they they don't care how much they get paid when they work for those companies or to, to my knowledge anyway. They're just excited to be a part of something and feel like part of a greater identity. Um, and that's how those companies have been able to to enter an already saturated market and and thrive so quickly.
0: Ah, oh, I love it. Do you think it is because also like companies? Um, live their, their, their values and I know it's very a sensitive subject to values of a company because it's been misused by so many yeah. companies that have it written on the wall and never really applying any of it like oh we have transparent comp- uh, transparent value or we're very collaborative and actually they're very siloed and like like to stab themselves in the back all the time. Yeah. Um, so, But do you think like those companies have strong brand values that they not only use externally, but use it internally to drive that performance?
1: I definitely think so. I mean, values, are they're a little bit different to the way that we sort of think of them as a society. So to me, values are all about integrity. So when you say you're going to do something, you actually do it. It's not what's important to you. It's actually following through with what you think is important. And I think there's a big difference in the the companies that do one or the other. I mean, those that say they do something and deliver something very different might find that their staff have, you know, are leaving very quickly because they've signed up for a reality or a promise that's never been delivered. Mm. Um, whereas those those companies that actually believe in the things that they set out to do or the things that they stand by and live and breathe that culture, um, you know, that that integrity goes a long way. Their staff know that they're not sort of being um, kept in the dark, you know, it's very obvious what they're coming to work day to day to achieve. Okay. And it just makes that that cultural identity a lot easier to tap into, even yeah. from, you know, the ground floor, for example.
0: Yeah. I see that all the time that um, even though it, like even back in the hiring process of a company is they are so keen to have somebody on board and they sell them something that is not really the reality so that person starts start their job and then in the first three to six months they find out it's basically not reflecting what they were sold in the first in the first place and then yeah. you yeah. you invest all that time as a business in an employee that's actually already like disengaged and disconnected from that business and ultimately unhappy so um is how how do you guys approach that from a sense of like hiring that talent uh, in the market then
1: so well you you hit the nail on the head so it's the companies that um live and breathe their values are often the companies that have you know the the highest demand for employment um i mean the i imagine the waiting list to be employed at something like google would be extremely long mm. um we as a company we've been quite fortunate because we are still early stages where within our first few years of trading Um, we don't silo ourselves to hiring for a specific role. So we actually hire for the individual and then um, what's the best way to describe it? We hire for talented individuals and then sort of throw them into the mix and shuffle them around for a couple of weeks and where they sort of naturally settle and provide value is the role that they create for themselves. Now, that like that will obviously change as we continue to scale.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but when we initially meet people, we try not to make it role specific. So the conversation is not around, you know, what's, what are your specific skills? You know, how like what have you done in this specific industry? You know, can you show us or give us an example of this, that, the other? It's, it's not about that at all. For us, finding the, the right cultural fit and the right attitude to, you know, to actually work and add to the existing environment is the most important thing for us. Um, the skills can be acquired over time, but if you hire the wrong type of person, they're, you know, they're very difficult to replace.
0: You're so 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 right on that. It's hiring for attitudes and not specifically on skills. Like I've seen it so over and over again when uh, people just look at a, a resume and say, like, oh. That person ticks all the boxes and then they interview that person and they can already see there's a, a cultural uh, misfit between what they, the culture they have and what the person has. But then often you have the decision makers or the hiring managers like being on the pressure so much to deliver certain projects in a certain time frame that they um, yeah, don't almost, really.
1: Almost yeah. backed into a corner to, to make the hire.
0: Exactly. So they don't have a choice to hire on attitude and to spend the time in, in training and developing that person. Uh, so they hire on skills, but it's a catch-22 because that those, that person might not have been the best person in that company and in that role from a, an attitude and a personality fit. And so that person would leave within like a year or less than a year. And then the hiring manager has to start all over again. So it's just like a vicious circle and you you need to break out of that mold. And I think it's almost like you have to believe in the fact that if you hire on attitude and invest the time, then you will reap the rewards in in the long term. But yeah, Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. One of the things that one of my very early sales mentors taught me was, Hiring someone within your business is like going to get a new puppy for your home. It's, it's never a case of you go down to the pet store and the first cute puppy that sort of licks your hand, that's the one you take home. <laughs> Some people might do it that way, but it's a, it's a living, breathing animal. It's going to be with you for 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Um, you don't want to get sort of buyer's remorse a couple of months in and go, oh, maybe I should have bought, you know, a Pomeranian or a German Shepherd or something like that. Um, you shop around. You have a look for the one that's going to suit your needs the best. And if it takes a little bit longer, then you know you wait for the right one. And it's the same with hiring people. Um, you know, it's an expensive exercise, so you want to make sure that your your money goes to the right place.
0: Yeah, and people don't see the 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 cost involved that they they um, on the long term of making the wrong choice. They often see the short term repercussions if they don't hire that person immediately and. But they end up hiring the wrong person, which has really long-term consequences uh, to to and cost them more money than if they would actually just wait a little bit longer and shopped around a little bit and and defined really okay what attitudes what what traits am I looking for that are, that are needed for this role basically yeah yeah
1: that's right the world's a wonderful place There's many different kinds of people and you know there's there's a lot that will definitely suit your working environment but as we spoke about before it's not just about suiting your working environment it's about finding one that's actually going to add to your working yeah. culture
0: yeah um, and it's
1: that old old example of one plus one should equal three
0: exactly and that's going to drive that performance culture in the end you have to hire the right people to support that because otherwise the second is never going to happen if the first isn't isn't, uh, isn't right De- exactly definitely. right um, and also, what I see, if we talk about uh, across generations, one of the, the 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 challenges I faced often was like uh, when I was hiring for a senior manager's role or a director's role, they want certain years of experience, and it's like. Often, it's not about the skills that somebody has acquired in a short amount of time that actually makes them perfectly capable to perform and outperform in the role. No, they, they tend to go to the years that they can physically see on a resume or uh, hear in an interview like, oh, they have 15 years experience. They, they must be good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. So this is the, the counter argument to that. If you've got 15 years of experience in the same role, Does that not then say that you've never been able to progress beyond that set of skills?
0: Yes. And and often those people have have progressed, but it's just like they they haven't made. um, um, There is this judgment of like if. I remember like being in my early 20s and being on a board of directors. And in the beginning, (laughs) they were looking at me like, what is she doing here? What is she going to come to? Yeah. So I think like if you have like 15, 20 years experience and then be part of a board, then it's like a natural. It's like, okay, yes, she's doing that. But if you're in your early 20s, and have accomplished that, then people have so many questions and you have so much resistance to the value that you even can bring. They don't see it because they're, um, they're filled with or consumed by prejudgment.
1: Yeah, yeah. Experience definitely counts. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's one of those cultural shifts that we're slowly making um, in that it's, it's no longer about, you know, how many years have you been doing your job? It's how much value can you provide in doing your job for us? Exactly, Um, And that's something that I've really noticed over the last few years of sort of moving through my own career is regardless of experience, once you're actually in a role, you know, your your performance indicators are not, you know, we're going to give you a raise because you've now been with us two, three years. It's, you know, we're going to give you a raise or promote you because you've done X, Y, Z things for the growth of the business.
2: Yes. Um,
1: And that has been a very difficult bridge to cross for a lot of the corporate culture for the last few years, but I think we're getting there. Yes. Um, experience is hugely important. Um, but for, for anyone who's actually interviewing, I mean, if the experience isn't there, the conversation should be more about what can you actually bring to the business? Yeah. Um, you know, perhaps that that experience is going to be made with the business that you're interviewing with currently. It's just about, you know, exploring the opportunity that you can bring to the table, not the one that you've already had with previous mm-hmm. employers.
0: I have another question, turning it around now. Um, I see a lot of clients that I have that have, like like, like I said, over 15 years experience and always been very um, following the rules, let me tell you. So, like, very, like, traditional, very following the rules and, um, not overstepping any boundaries, working really hard, progressing through their career. But then they have like younger people that come in the organization that like to challenge the status quo, like to do things different. And then if they get the chance, they, they flourish. So what advice would you say to a generation that has really have that blueprint, like, oh, I need to follow the rules. That's how things need to be done. what advice would you give for, for, for people that are in that situation?
1: So I would say like, don't be resistant to change. I would say learn. And one of the things that, um, I've always been taught is if someone beats you in a race, you, you find out what it is that they're doing better Mm. and you learn to do better than that. Um, if somebody, if somebody had superseded me in, you know, in my employment, if somebody had come in and leapfrogged me, I would want to know what it was about that individual's expertise or, or skill set that I hadn't been able to provide. And rather than sort of um, feeling down about it, that I didn't have those particular skills or attributes, I would go out and acquire them. Um, It's like, it's never too old to pick up new skills or learn new things or, you know, perhaps move into a different industry where your skills are now better suited. Mm. Um, Like we work in a, in a very live economy, things change day to day. You know, you might find that a, a software engineer who is previously working for IBM is now wanted, and you know, will be very well remunerated if they move to a startup or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you have to be ready to adapt to change,
2: yeah.
1: um, rather than to fight it. And I think the same the same applies with you know perhaps being um, superseded in your in your position. Like I, I would never be down about it. I'll use it as an opportunity to, to better yourself.
0: Yeah. It's like it's such an invaluable insight that, that you're sharing because it's moving away from that blame uh, culture that you, ha- you might have. Like I see it all the time when something bad happens to you, no matter what it is, if somebody uh, bypasses you for a promotion, you don't get hired or even in your personal life, it doesn't really matter. But you always have a choice, And the choice is that you pick yourself up and that you look at the opportunities that it provides and the learnings that you can take from it and how you can actually now improve yourself. Or you can have self-pity and blame all of the, the rest and just stay stuck. And that's basically your choice. But the control is within you.
1: That's right. That's right. And none of the none of the blame factors are going to assist you in you know going out and getting a better job or getting a pay increase. Nothing like that. Mm. You have to be proactive in getting those things. They're not. They're not handed to you. So yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. So um, bringing it back to driving that that uh, high performance culture. Where do you see people go wrong? What do you see as, as the biggest mistakes when people attempt to create that, but not really? do it the right way?
1: One of the big ones that we see is siloing of information. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that was the most important thing to me when I first entered the workforce was not the biggest pay packet that I could get. It was how much can I actually learn from the senior people in the organisation. That, like, that counts for years of experience in itself. Um, And one of the things that is very challenging for young people entering the workforce is being siloed out of, you know, information that they actually want to learn. Um, that can then start to generate quite a negative culture because you've got young people who feel like they're all of a sudden not important enough to be included in things or perhaps this information is too sensitive to share with them. Um, by the same token, like it can be the reverse of that. You might have quite a young team who you know, exclude some of the older members of the organization from meetings and information and things like that. So yeah. um, having very open channels of communication, an open-door policy, um, you know, in terms of nothing should be shut out from those that want to learn um, is hugely important. Um, mm-hmm. If, you know, if secrets are being kept within within a company, then, you know, people start to cast their doubts. Um, yeah, it's it's very important to be completely open and transparent with with everyone, basically everyone in the organisation from yeah. top to bottom.
0: Yeah, perfect. And what are some of the symptoms that uh, that people have? Because sometimes you don't see... Like I, I will say it how it is, but sometimes you don't see your own shit until you, <laughs> you just, it hits you in the face. Yeah. Uh, so what are some of, the, some of the symptoms that people say like, actually, maybe we, we're not as open as we think we are or we're more siloed and we just didn't recognize it. So what would you so,
1: say? So at in its most basic form, um, you'll find that there will be sort of either email chains, depending on the type of company that it is, email chains, perhaps small meetings, or, you know, people going into small rooms with closed doors and things like that. Um, those are often very basic indicators that there's sort of, there's information being passed around that's not um, not sort of privy to everyone, like it's, it's not open information. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the second step to that is then being inquisitive about it, rather than sort of um, mulling it over in your head and maybe perhaps getting down that you're, you're not a part of it, like the, the first thing you should probably do is ask, hey, like, you know, what's happening? Um, is there something that I can help with? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, if there's any resistance to that, then I think it's a pretty good indicator that there's, you know, perhaps there's a, a negative sub, uh, subculture starting to form within the workplace.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, that's something that we try and keep very, very on top of. Um, because I've, I've seen it happen in a couple of previous businesses. Yeah. Um, people start to choose sides and sort of form teams and you create a lot of hostility. And then you'll find that people will start perhaps working from home, you know, all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, it's a very slippery slope once you get into that territory.
0: Yeah. Um, are you a believer in employee engagement service to, um, to help and support uncovering that?
1: Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's not something that we would prescribed for our employees Um, we try and keep things quite personal so um, you know if somebody is perhaps um, not as engaged as they were in in previous weeks you know we'll take them out for a a one-on-one or a coffee or a lunch or something like that try and keep it very personal Um, we also try and make sure that you know people are actually asking for critical feedback from their peers very very often Um, and that's also on a on a personal note like we make it okay to turn around to the guy next to you and say, "Hey, am I being crabby with you today?" Um, you know, let me know. And it's very good for personal learning as well because you start to develop a sense of your limits. Um, you know, what affects you in the workplace? Perhaps, like perhaps, the workplace doesn't have enough coffee, and you've got a, a bunch of <laughs> caffeine addicts that just aren't, you know, just aren't getting their fix. Um, yeah. You'll never know unless you actually ask the questions. So we try and get our guys to ask as many questions regarding sort of behavior as possible
0: it is hard it, and some things are so easily fixed like you you mentioned like uh, with the coffee addiction yeah. um i um i ran a couple of uh, employee engagement surveys and um i know that uh, like the opinions are varied around the effectiveness of those but i i like them because how i did arranged workshops around them was more looking at it okay what's the low hanging fruit here what are we what can i fix immediately that people are actually just like grumpy about and what is like the long term changes but if they already can see that the the low hanging fruit would be picked up and done something about it they would have a trust that the longer stuff will be fixed also but it just takes time um and it's just like identifying what are the small changes in your organization that you can make that will make all the difference to your employees and what will make them happy and uh as a starting point basically um so yes de- definitely
1: yeah Yeah, the quick wins are are very important, even just for that, you know, in the moment morale boost.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, um, what are some of the consequences that you that you see? We already discussed, like, okay, uh, if a company is not uh, creating that performance culture across generation, they might lose out lose out on uh, their competitive edge. So, we have seen one of the consequences uh, that that might have. What are some of the other consequences that they that they might have or might see as an organization?
1: So I quickly touched on before um, people begin choosing sides. What you'll find is that within a company that's perhaps not performing to the best of its ability and you start to see a bit of that blame game happening,
2: Mm -hmm. um,
1: people will naturally um, migrate to the side that they think has their best interests at heart, whether that's a fight between the, the directors of the business or whether it's a fight between perhaps two internal teams, all those sorts of things. Your competition should be with your competitors, not internally within your organization. Um, if you're fighting within your own company, then your your capacity to actually get ahead in the market in general is very limited. Um, you're you're basically playing tug of war with you know the the performance of the business. Um, that's perhaps the biggest handbrake that you can pull um, within the company. So that's the the most obvious one. Some of the other ones that stem from that is perhaps future employment opportunities. Yeah. If you uh, all of a sudden sort of choose a side or perhaps enter into that sort of hostile culture within a, a business, no matter, how evident, uh, no matter how evidently hostile it is, yeah. um, perhaps there's somebody who, you know, whose toes you're standing on who you'll be interviewing with in a few years' time. Um, you just don't know. We live in such a small world that, sure, you can't please everyone, but you know you you have to be very careful and it's the it's the owners of the business responsibility to to look out for their employees um when things start to fall apart it's not just the in the moment ramifications that can hang around for years as well
0: yeah it's self sabotaging isn't it i it is. uh, I didn't think about it that way, but it is so true and um, people even like when um, when I was uh, representing candidates for open positions, uh, the manager would say like, oh, uh, that person worked there and I know like w- what they did and so that would, um, they wouldn't have that opportunity just because what they have done previously in the workplace basically, their behavior, their attitude, and then and, and choosing sides uh, with the wrong people, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you you don't want to be seen as one of those people that is contributing to that negative culture because, no. you know, it's, as you said, it's one of those behavioral, uh, behavioral attributes that will hang around you forever.
0: Yeah. Exactly, and and try to change that. That's so hard. <laughs> yeah,
1: it is. It is like your your reputation can take years to build and seconds to break. Oh,
0: so. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so I I like to share some practical information with um, the community and our listeners, and I know we already covered like some invaluable insights. But just uh, summarise it. What would be your top recommendations
1: um, for within a within a company? So. For yeah. building a performance culture within a company.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so just sort of summarizing the things that we've spoken about. So number one is being very open and transparent. Yeah. Communication is key and that goes from the top all the way down to the bottom. Um, number two is asking as many questions as you can, particularly around behavior. Um, I mean, you don't have to be friends with everyone, but making sure that everyone's aware of, you know, the ins and outs of people's personalities um, you know, how, how to best deal with them, those coping mechanisms and finding out what they are is extremely important. Um, number three is making sure that everyone is moving in the same direction.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so as I said, like internal tug of war is not good for anyone. Um, you end up tearing the company in half and perhaps your own reputation with it. Um, and to get, to get everyone onto the same page, you know, things like team building sessions or or retraining sessions or just social outings, very low cost things, Mm -hmm. Um, or perhaps sitting down and discussing what you respect about each other the most. Like these are, these are very basic, almost kindergarten type exercises, um, but they're still extremely important in the workplace. Um, We are just big kids after all. (laughs) Um, Yeah, those would be the most important ones just on a surface level. Um, And if things have already started trending negatively, you know, I would say to to sort of not engage in that blame game. To actually think about the the small steps that you can take to improve this, rather than you know perhaps trying to pin your your actions on other people or um, or jump over other people, because you know you you will meet these people again someday. Yeah. Um. So yeah, to treat everyone with respect.
0: Yeah, and to not lose your own integrity or compromise on your own integrity. I uh, see that also very often that people start to compromise on it and, and so, and it's slippery slope. If you
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Trust can't be bought, but it is extremely valuable.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. So my God, um, where can people connect with you? Because like you shared some invaluable insight and um like I, I'm, so some gold nuggets that I'm sure uh, people are going to be uh, very appreciative of and also some different views because it's a topic not often spoken about or talked about. Uh, so where, where can people connect with you and find out more about you?
1: So I'm, I'm Sydney-based, so I'm always happy to catch up for a coffee or a phone call or anything like that. Um, I have personal contact details that you're absolutely welcome to, to catch me on. Mm -hmm. Um, either on my mobile or my email which is d.g.mccarthy at Outlook.com and yeah I'm I'm relatively free outside of work so yeah like my my favorite obviously is catching up for coffee because I myself from a bit of a caffeine addict Um, (laughs) plus ideas flow much better with a bit of coffee behind them yes Um, but yeah always welcome
0: perfect Thank you so much for being on the show and taking the time today to share those insights, Sam.
1: My pleasure, Carolyn. Thank you for having me.
0: Perfect. Thanks. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.